Well, some things really are better together. Um, I'm not sure why those all had to be about food, because now I'm a little hungry, and you're probably hungry too, but don't worry, I promise we will get you out in plenty of time to hit up all these great restaurants here on South Congress. So um, let me pray, and we'll dive right in. God, thank you so much for this morning. Um, Thank you for the fact that you are here, you are with us, God. I pray that, just like Matt said, as we open your word, um, that it will speak to us, God, that we will leave here um, changed, different than we were before, God, because uh, we are more intimately acquainted with your son, Jesus, and the power and majesty that comes only through knowing him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if, if you're into um, sociology at all, this is such an interesting time to be alive, I think. And the way that humans relate to one another has changed drastically over the last 10 years. And a big part of that um, is social media. Uh, According to a recent study that was done in 2005, 7% of adults use social media. In 2015, 65% of adults use social media. So the world is changing. I think that it's really much easier to be connected with other people than ever before. We can do it so quickly. It's easy to find people that share common interests with you, and you do this really easily online, social media and other things. Um, A few weeks ago, I filled out a bracket for March Madness on ESPN, and as soon as I finished filling out the bracket, it asked me who my favorite team was. And if you know me at all, one of my my very favorite things in life is Duke basketball. And so I went down, I found Duke, and I hit Duke, and it immediately sent me to this page, this group, where it was like every Duke fan in the world that had filled, I mean, it was thousands and thousands that had filled out a bracket. And at the bottom, there's this message board, and people are sending messages to each other. I'm watching the real-time posts going back and forth, people having conversations, people connecting over Duke basketball and the tournament. But the crazy thing is that sociologists are finding that even though we are more connected than ever before, people feel more alone and unknown than at any point in human history. Isn't that incredible? We're more connected, and it's happening instantaneously. It's at our fingertips. As soon as we want it, we can connect with people, but people actually feel more alone and unknown than ever before. Why is this? I think it's mostly because we are connected with people around a commonality, Duke basketball, something else like that. We connect around a shared interest, And commonalities and shared interests are always changing. What happens after March Madness ends? My thousands of new friends go away. That group closes. There are no more message boards. Maybe we exchange an email address or something. We can keep up, but season ends. We don't really have much to talk about anymore. Recently, a friend told me about this really cool site called meetup.com. Have you ever heard of that? Meetup.com. So you can go to meetup and you can figure out people who share your interests and then you can meet up with them all over you know, your city or whatever city that you're in. Um, so it's really an incredible site. Here, I went on to it earlier this week and here are a few of the groups I found on there. Stand up paddle boarding fans, Austin mountain bikers, salsa dancers in Austin, English and Espanol Conversation Club, Austin Women Who Love Beer. Almost went to that one. Uh, Just kidding. Uh, My wife's in the kids' area, so don't tell her about that one. Um, Hardware startup companies in Austin. That's pretty specific, right? Liberal Ladies Lunch Group. I mean, there were all kinds of things in this site. Now, hear me. There's absolutely nothing wrong with going to a meetup, being a part of one of these groups, 
But my question for you is what happens when those commonalities shift? What happens when you sprain your ankle and you can't salsa anymore? That group goes away. What happens when you develop a gluten sensitivity and you can no longer have beer? That group goes away. What happens when your hardware startup company in Austin goes under? All your hardware startup company buddies probably don't want to hang out with you as much anymore. I found one called North Austin Singles, 30 to 39 only, who loves Zilker Park. (laughs) What happens when you move out of North Austin, or you turn 40, or you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, or you develop an allergy to oak trees, and you can't go to Zilker Park anymore? I mean, any of these things can happen, and you can't be a part of that group anymore. These friends usually... If the commonalities shift, the relationships end. When commonalities shift and you've built community around commonalities, the relationship ends. I think most of us can agree that life really is better when it's lived together. So in a world where commonalities are ever-changing and people feel more alone than ever before, how can we experience true, authentic, real community? Well, I think that the incredible part of this is that the Bible answers that question for us. So this morning, we are going to be in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. So go ahead and turn there. Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And let me set up the context of this letter for you, and specifically the context of chapter 12. So Paul wrote this letter around 57 AD. That's a little less than 25 years after Jesus was crucified and was buried and rose from the grave. So during this time in the early church period, there were uh, factions or fractures around commonality lines, if you will. So people would fracture along racial lines or socioeconomic lines or even gender lines, but it always meant that some group was being excluded from the church. Maybe it was a church just for Jews and Gentiles couldn't go. Maybe it was a church just for men and women weren't allowed to go. Maybe it was a church just for free people and so servants or slaves couldn't go to it. This was happening all over the countryside. These churches were developing around commonalities rather than around Jesus. In chapter 11, Paul had just finished spending an entire chapter talking about how the Jews and the Gentiles, and you don't know what a Gentile is, Gentile is basically anyone who's not a Jew. So he just finished this entire chapter talking about how the Jews and anybody who's not a Jew have to be united together under Christ. He is promoting unity and community inside of the church. Then he picks it up in chapter 11, verse 3, and he says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed To each of you, Paul is imploring his readers here do not think more highly of yourselves. Why? Why would he talk about not thinking more highly of yourselves when he's talking about unity and community? Look at verse 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. Each member belongs to all the others. Even though we are many, we form one body. How can many form one? The answer is very simple. It's a two-word phrase. It is one of the most powerful phrases in all of Scripture. In Christ. In Christ, even though we are many, 
we are one. In Christ, even though we are black, white, Hispanic, Asian, even though we are rich and poor, even though we are male and female, gay and straight, rich and poor, I mean, it doesn't matter. In Christ, we are one. So verse three simply means that thinking more highly of yourselves makes you think that you can be one, you can be the body of Christ all alone. If you think more highly of yourself, you think, I don't need anybody else. I can just kind of do what I need to do on my own. But Paul's saying that's simply not true. We need each other. As he puts it so beautifully at the end of verse five, we belong to each other. I love that verse. We belong to each other. And when we realize we belong to each other, the fact that we are all different goes from annoying to amazing. The fact that we're all different goes from annoying to amazing. Look at verse six. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. What happens when we realize we belong to each other and embrace our differences? The gifts that Paul just described are unleashed to the world. We get to encourage people with full hearts. We get to serve people. We get to teach people. We get to love people because we're doing it as one. One of our four core values here at Restore is diversity. And we very simply believe that the church works better when we encourage our differences rather than divide along our differences. When we empower the diversity of Christ, the church is unstoppable. When we empower the diversity of Christ, the church is unstoppable. It is an unstoppable force of grace and hope and love and change and restoration for the world around us. God has made all of us different, but he has made all of us valuable. We have differences in race and ethnicity and gender and socioeconomic status, education, passion, abilities, struggles, personalities, shortcomings. But he's made us one in Christ. Have you ever heard the term melting pot? That's a term that was used a lot if you've taken history classes and it's used about America kind of in the early days. You had all these people coming from different areas and they came into this place and everything was kind of melted down so that you just had Americans. You didn't have you know, French or European or, or Indian or anything like that. You just melted everybody down and everybody ended up kind of looking and talking and acting the same. But the church, I don't think it's supposed to be a melting pot. I think it's supposed to be a salad bowl. Because in a melting pot, everything melts down and everything looks the same. But in a salad bowl, you have all the different ingredients that are highlighted. Everything good comes to the surfaces and our differences end up actually complementing each other. Have you ever had a salad with just lettuce in it? No dressing, no croutons, no cheese, no anything like that. It's not good. It's like what rabbits eat, okay? But when you put all the different things in there, the dressings that you like and the croutons and maybe even some chicken and olives and all this other kind of stuff you get this incredible tasting meal because everything is different, but it's working together as one. The Bible says this is what heaven is gonna be like. Revelation 7, 9 says, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages were standing before the throne. All different kinds of people from all different kinds of places with all different kinds of backgrounds and all different kinds of gifts are brought together in Christ as one. 
the many become one. If we try to unite ourselves with others based on ever-changing commonalities that we may share at the time, the relationship will almost always fall apart. But if we realize that we are one in Christ and we unite around him, those relationships almost always endure. Let me give you an example of this. So when I, uh, I played football um, in high school here in Austin area, and um, after, after my senior year, after I graduated, I went to a school in Abilene, Texas called Hardin-Simmons, and um, I played football there. And so my first day of two-a-days, we go out to the field, and there are 80 freshmen trying out for this football team. 80, not 18, 80 freshmen. And that's just freshmen. There are also all of the sophomores and juniors and seniors. And so we have our first practice, our first of the two-a-days that first day, and I remember being just dead tired, and I go and I sit in my locker, and I'm sitting in my locker, and the, one of the coaches walks in, and he puts a piece of paper on the offensive side of the locker room and one on the defensive side of the locker room, and it's the depth chart, right? You know what a depth chart is? It shows where you're kind of ranked by each position, who's the starter, who's the backup, who's the backup's backup, all the way down. And so I forget my exhaustion, and I run up to the depth chart, and I look under center. I played center right in the middle of the line, the one that snaps the ball, the one that gets very familiar with the quarterback. And I go up, and I look for my name on the depth chart, and I look at the starter, and it's not me, and the backup, and it's not me, and just, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. I get all the way down to sixth, and the depth chart ends, and my name is not on it. And I'm thinking... It's just a mistake, right? It's no big deal. I'll just run down to the coach's office, ask him about it. Ain't no thing. So I take off towards the coach's office, and I'm like, Coach, um, they, uh, they posted the depth chart in the locker room, and, and I went ahead and went up and looked at it, and I noticed that my name wasn't on there. I'm not mad. It's okay. It's just a little mistake. If you could just fix it, you know, and tell me where I am on the depth chart, that would be great. Without even looking up from his desk, he says, did you check the second page? And I was like, oh, I didn't realize there was a, a second page. So I turn off, I run back in the locker room, and I get up there, and sure enough, about a foot below the first depth chart is the second depth chart. And I start going down the list. And I'm the second person on the second depth chart. And in case you don't do math so well, that is the eighth center. I was the eighth person on the depth chart. And as you can imagine, playing Football and being the eighth center at a Division three school is not the most glamorous position. I went and sat back down in my locker, and I thought really seriously about quitting football for the first time. It's like, what am I doing here? There, there are seven people better at the one thing that I do than me. There are 22 guys that start on the team. So 22 positions, you do 22 times seven. I can't even do that math, but it's a lot. That's all the people that are better at me than football. And so I'm sitting there, I'm contemplating, what am I going to do next? What's life going to look like maybe without football? And, but I decide I, I'm going to push through. I'm going to try. I'm going to see if I can rise up on that depth chart. So sure enough, practice after practice, I begin to, they post a new depth chart after every practice, and I start to slowly move up, seventh, sixth, fifth, fourth. And by the very first game, I was second on the depth chart. And I was so proud of it. And I went from being eighth on that depth chart and literally sitting by myself in the cafeteria. I mean, it was like high school all over again. I'd go to the cafeteria with all, because it was just football players there for two days. And it was like, nobody wants to sit with the eighth ranked center on the football team. <laughs> but when I jumped up to second, people started sitting with me. I got to know some of the other players. I got to know some of the upperclassmen. It was great. I had, now I had like 150 friends on this football team. They, we all knew each other. We hung out every single day. 
And I thought, man, these, are gonna be, these guys are going to be some of my friends for the rest of my life. So the season ends and the spring semester begins. And during the spring semester, we're doing off-season workouts. And one day we're doing these mat drills and I feel my shoulder pop. And it starts to hurt pretty bad, and, um, but I kind of try to play through it, and it gets worse and worse and worse. I'm not able to do anything. I'm getting treatment from the trainer. Nothing is helping. And so he says, Zach, I think you need to get an MRI. So I go get an MRI, and the long story short is that my bicep tendon had torn away from my shoulder and rolled down into my elbow. And so they had to pick it up and suture it back in to my shoulder, and that was a career-ending football injury for me. And maybe, not maybe, significantly sadder than not being able to play football anymore is that I went from having like 150 friends that I hung out with all the time, that I sweated with and cried with when we lost, and I mean, that I worked out with every single day that I thought were my brothers, like 150 of them to five. Five guys stayed my friend after I got hurt and didn't play football anymore. And of those five guys, Long after football has ended, we have stayed friends. And you know why? Because it turned out our commonality wasn't football. Me and those five guys, our commonality was Jesus. We served at churches together. We worked at camps together. We were in each other's weddings. And long after football is gone, years after I've graduated, those are still some of the guys that I call when difficult times come up. Because when my commonality of football shifted, I lost like 145 friends. But my commonality of Jesus that I shared with those five guys remained the same. When you are united with a group of people in Christ and really difficult times inevitably come, you don't have to worry about walking through them alone. You don't have to worry about a shared commonality changing because here's the truth, don't miss this. You don't share a hobby, you share a person. You don't share a hobby or a a like or a dislike with those people, you share a person. His name is Jesus and he changes everything. The writer of Ecclesiastes puts it this way. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one there to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. There's this nonprofit organization um, that you may have heard of. It's called To Write Love on Her Arms. And it's a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to presenting hope and finding help for people who are struggling with depression, um, addiction, self-injury, and suicide. And it all started back when their founder, Jamie, walked through a really difficult time with this girl named Renee. And um, honestly, it may be the most powerful story of Christian community that I have ever read. And so I'm gonna have one of our members here, Janae, come up, and she's going to read Jamie and Renee's story. Pedro the Lion is loud in the speakers, and the city waits just outside our window. She sits and sings, legs crossed in the passenger seat, her pretty voice hiding in the volume. Music is a safe place, and Pedro is her favorite. It hits me that she won't see this skyline for several weeks, and we will be without her. I lean forward, knowing this will be written, 
and ask what she'd say if her story had an audience. She smiles. Tell them to look up. Tell them to remember the stars. I would rather write her a song because songs don't wait to resolve and because songs mean so much to her. Stories wait for endings, but songs are brave, things bold enough to sing when they all know darkness. These words, like most words, will be written next to midnight between Hurricane and Harbor as both claim to save her. Renee is 19. When I meet her, cocaine is fresh in her system. She hasn't slept in 36 hours, and she won't for another 24. It is a familiar blur of coke, pot, pills, and alcohol. She has agreed to meet us, to listen, and to let us pray. We ask Renee to come with us, to leave this broken night. She says she'll go to rehab tomorrow, but she isn't ready now. It is too great a change. We pray and say goodbye, and it is hard to leave without her. She has known such great pain, haunted dreams as a child, the near constant present of evil ever since. She has felt the touch of awful naked men, battled depression and addiction, and attempted suicide. Her arms remember razor blades, 50 scars that speak of self-inflicted wounds. Six hours after I meet her, she is feeling trapped. Two groups of friends offering opposite ideas. Everyone is asleep. The sun is rising. She drinks along from a bottle of liquor, takes a razor blade from the table, and locks herself in the bathroom. She cuts herself, using the blade to write F up, large across her left forearm. The nurse at the treatment center finds the wound several hours later. The center has no detox, names her too great a risk, and does not accept her. For the next five days, she is ours to live. We become her hospital, and the possibility of healing fills our living room with life. It is unspoken, and there are only a few of us, but we will be her church, the body of Christ coming alive to meet her needs, to write love on her arms. She is full of contrast, more alive and closer to death than anyone I've known, like a Johnny Cash song or some theater star. She owns attitude and humor beyond her 19 years, and when she tells me her story, she is humble and quiet and kind, shaped by the pain of a hundred lifetimes. I sit privileged, but breaking as she shares. Her life has been so dark, yet there is some soft hope in her words. And on, cons on consecutive evenings, I watch the prettiest girls in the room tell her that she's beautiful. I think it's God reminding her. I've never walked this road, but I decide that if we're going to run a five-day rehab, it is going to be the coolest in the country. It is going to be rock and roll. We start with the basic. Lots of fun, too much Starbucks, and way too many cigarettes. Thursday night, she is in the balcony of Ban Marino, Orlando's finest. They are indie folk fabulous, a movement disguised as a circus. She loves them, and she smiles when I point out the A&R man from Atlantic Europe is in town from London just to catch the show. She is in good seats when the magic beat the Sonics the, night, the next night, screaming like a lifelong fan every, with every Dwight Howard dunk. On the way home, we stop for more coffee and books, blue light jazz, and traveling mercies. On Saturday, the Taste of Chaos tour is in town, and I'm not even sure we can get in. But doors do open, and minutes after parking, we are on stage for Thrice, one of her favorite bands. She stands 10 feet from the drummer, smiling constantly. It is a bright moment there in the music as light and rain collide above the stage. It feels like healing. It is certainly hope. Sunday night is church, and many gather after service to pray for Renee. This is her last night before entering rehab. Some are strangers, but all are friends tonight. The prayers move from broken to bold, all encouraging. We're talking to God, but I think as much we're talking to her, telling her she's loved, saying she does not go alone. 
One among us knows her best. Ryan sits in the corner, corner strumming an acoustic guitar, singing songs she has inspired. After church, our house fills with friends. There are a few more moments before goodbye. Everyone has some gift for her, some note or hug or piece of encouragement. She pulls me aside and tells me she would like to give me something. I smile surprised, wondering what it could be. We walk through the crowded living room to the garage and her staff. She hands me her last razor blade, tells me that this is the one that she used to cut her arm in the last lines of coke five nights before. She's had it with her ever since, shares that tonight will be the hardest night, and she shouldn't have it. I hold it carefully, thank her, and know instantly that this moment, this gift, will stay with me. It hits me to wonder if this great feeling is what Christ knows when we surrender our broken hearts, when we trade death for life. As we arrive at the treatment center, she finishes. The stars are always there, but we miss them in the dirt and clouds. We miss them in the storms. Tell them to remember. Tell them we have hope. I have watched life come back to her, and it has been a privilege. When our time with her began, someone suggested shifts, but that is the language of business. Love is something better. I have been challenged and changed, reminded that love is that simple answer to so many of the hardest questions. Don Miller says, we're called to hold our hands against the wounds of the broken to stop the bleeding. I agree so greatly. We often ask God to show up. We pray prayers of rescue. Perhaps God would ask us to be the rescue, to be his body, to move for things that matter. It is not invisible when we come alive. I might be simple, but more and more, I believe God works in love, speaks in love, is revealed in our love. I have seen that this week, and honestly, it has been simple. Take a broken girl, treat her like a famous princess, give her the best seats in the house, buy her coffee and cigarettes for the coming down, books and bathroom things for the days ahead. Tell her something true when all she's known are lies. Tell her God loves her. Tell her about forgiveness, the possibility of freedom. Tell her that she was made to dance in white dresses. All these things are true. We are only asked to love, to offer hope to many hopeless. We don't get to choose all of the endings, but we are asked to play the rescuers. We won't solve all mysteries, and our hearts will certainly break in such vulnerable life. But it is the best way. We were made to be lovers, bold and broken places, pouring ourselves out again and again until we are called home. I've learned so much in one week, in one brave girl. She is alive now in the patience and safety of rehab, covered in marks of madness, but choosing to believe that God makes things new, that he meant hope and healing in the stars. Even though um, Renee and her friends might not have had all that much in common, they had one thing. They believed that God made all things new. In Christ, we can walk through some of the most difficult things imaginable because we don't walk through them alone. We walk through them with Jesus right beside us, manifested in our friends and our family that know him. In Christ, even though we are many, we are one. In Christ, even though we are many, we belong to each other. And in Christ, even though we are many, we are better together. Let me pray. God, thank you for the way that you love us and the way that you've chosen to love us through the hands and feet of your body, that is each other. 
Thank you for the fact that we don't have to walk through life alone, that we don't have to sit and watch as difficult things run us over, but we get to stand and walk hand in hand with our brothers and sisters because we are not united by a hobby or an interest or a sports team or a band. We are united by a person, and that person is Jesus. God, thank you that you're making all things new, beginning with us. Thank you for the restoration that occurs when we live life surrendered to you and are encouraged and empowered by the people around us who love us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.